Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Tonight we ask, what is Englishness and what is the future for England? As English identity grows, so do calls for independence, not only for English independence from Britain, but for independence from within England. With us this evening, we have Alex Niven, lecturer in English literature at Newcastle University and author of New Model Island, How to Build a Radical Culture Beyond the Idea of England. Hello, Alex. Matthew. We're also with John Denham. He serves as a Labour Member of Parliament for Southampton Itchen from 1992 to 2015. He's a former Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and now Director of the English Labour Network and, Sing and the Centre for English Identity and Politics at the University of Southampton. Hello, John. Hello, good evening. Uh, thank you both for coming on. Uh, the first question I want to ask, actually, is do you think there's been an English backlash to devolution in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland? John? There's, there's no, let's sketch the scene. In England, the extent to which people feel English varies quite considerably. So while about four out of five people in England say they're strongly English, a lot of those, about half of those people combine it with a strong sense of Britishness. The interesting group in the last 20 years is a group that I call the political English. It's about a third of the people of England. These are the people who are more English than British or English, not British. And it's that group of people who played such a big role in Brexit, in the election of the Johnson government in 2019. They tend to be very union skeptic. So they're not just Euro skeptic, they're union skeptic. So in part, in part, as far as we can see, them sensing, well, if they're Welsh, they're Scottish, I must be English, that sort of sense of Englishness. That's a part of the evolution of their identity. But it's equally true, you tend to find those in places and communities where if you, in broad terms, economic and social change has gone against them in the last 20 or 30 years. So they also tend to be people whose towns are getting older, who've lost their economy, who are resent, they feel they don't have the voice and the status they used to have. So it's quite, you know, the devolution constitutional issues is a part of their self-identity, but it's only one of a number of factors, I think, that has made this group emerge, which wasn't a distinct group as recently as 2001. So it's a very recent phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think you certainly have to look at um, the, the relatively recent kind of emergence, or perhaps you might say revival of Englishness, and certainly of a sort of uh, powerful... Uh, sense of Englishness and a sort of cultural foregrounding of the idea of England uh, against the backdrop of devolution in, in Wales and Scotland. I think if you're trying to sort of historicise English identity, it's certainly true, um, as John mentioned, you know, John mentioned a kind of 20 years period, this, this being um, something that's really taken hold and deepened over the last 20 years. I think that's certainly true. It's It's Clearly, there are kind of deeper historical contexts for Englishness and Britishness, but it's certainly true that the, the whole kind of debate that we're having now, sort of extending into the present, is really, you know, coming off the back of the late 90s and obviously the, the two referendums that we had in the very late 90s in Scotland and Wales. Do you think the fractures that we feel are as a consequence of devolution or do you think they are more economic? Well, I think if you go back further, the historical perspective, I would say, is the still the process of unraveling the imperial state. So if you look at it from a, a British or United Kingdom point of view, Britain was at the heart of an empire. 
what you see as soon as the empire starts to go is the different parts of the union beginning to separate themselves out and to develop their own political space and their own identity. And you saw it in Scotland in, in the 1960s. You saw the development of the Welsh language movement in Wales. You saw the reopening of the sort of unresolved colonial conflict in the partition of Ireland. England, of course, is slightly different in that because England was at the heart of a union that was a heart of an empire. So in that sense, England doesn't have a story in relation to empire or the union where we were the, we were the oppressed. In a sense, England emerges out of that. So I think you've got to see the pressures that led to devolution and what's happened as the unresolved devolution of the, of the imperial state. And, and, and there's a section of England sort of saying, we have no democracy, we have no voice, we have our own interests, they're not properly looked after. It's not the majority of people in England. It's, it's, it's not a, nat a broad national movement at this stage. So I put it in those terms. So I would say devolution is one of the marking points as we move away from a, an imperial state towards well, whatever we move towards, either the fragmentation of the union or a new type of union. You talk about a new type of union, a fragmentation of the union. Alex, do you think that both devolution and the union can survive? And do you think this sort of muscular Britishness we're seeing from the UK government is the key way that we're going to see the survival of the union? Or do you think that's going to do more damage? I think certainly in the case of Scotland, it's looking very, very likely now that Scotland will, will break away at some point in the next 20 years. Obviously, Wales is a, is a different case. Uh, you probably know far more about this than, than I do. Uh, but I think it would be fair to say that, you know, the, the Welsh uh, independence movement is slightly less far along the path than in Scotland. Um, so it's a bit more, there's a bit more of a live debate there, I think. But certainly in the case of Scotland, I think, I think the game's up. It's a disaster. And what we need to understand is actually the union has always been held by us together by a certain degree of ambiguous statecraft. So it enabled people in England to see the union essentially as the extension of English in interests. And if you look at what people like Enoch Powell or Roger Scruton or so on wrote about the union, it's sort of our parliament and we let some other people in. It's our monarchy and we let some other people in. It's very much that view of it. Uh, but at the same time, the Scots could feel we are different. We are within a union where we've got our own uh, church, we have our own laws, our own education system. And Wales, largely through language, you can tell me if I'm wrong, also had this distinctive sense of identity within the union. This new muscular unionism from Johnson doesn't allow for any of that. It simply says, you know, we are the union government. I know I've been elected in England, or my, my majority is in England, but we are the union, we speak for the union. And that seems to me to be the worst possible approach if you're trying to persuade somebody in Scotland or Wales that they want to remain part of this thing. So, I mean, I, mine's not a majority view, but I very argue very strongly, the biggest threat to the union is not Wales, Scotland, or Northern Ireland, it's England. And it's this combination of a very alienated group of English voters who are not really unionists and Boris Johnson's sort of Anglo-centric British nationalism. And I, I think, I mean, I'm with Alex, I, 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 I don't do my politics in Scotland, but I cannot see, they seem to believe that another £800 million of what used to be the, of what's now called the Shared Prosperity Fund being given in grants to Scottish councils is somehow going to persuade the people of Scotland the union's a good deal. And I, it just, it's, it, you know, identity is not transactional like that. Alex, do you think that the Tory government in Westminster is an English nationalist government? 
To a large extent, that's uh, that's fair to say. I think I, I, personally, I think Johnson pri- sort of privately has abandoned. Scott, I think a certain wing of the Tory party, at least, and probably Johnson himself, uh, wouldn't be too bothered with with Scotland going its own way. I think they'd probably feel conf- conflicted about this. There are the, the kind of old uh, unionists, uh, this is the old kind of conservative unionist identity, which which I think means something to them. But I think um, they're they're quite happy. I think with with shrinking into into England again, Wales slightly more complicated. I mean, clearly the Tories have to main, maintain power in, in some way. The Tory offer does not work economically for huge swathes of the country, so they have to kind of they have to have a kind of cultural um, identitarian offer that wins over people who wouldn't who don't or aren't materially advantaged by conservative policies. Um, and now, as throughout history, a kind of tub thumping nationalism is one of, if not the best way to do that. And, and that's been the case um, for Johnson. It was a part of the Brexit vote, although in kind of complicated ways. And I think it could easily, you know, going forward be put to other uses, but could be pushed back against increasing Scottish independence. There could be uh, more, uh, more wars. There could, you know, it could uh, be felt in a kind of militaristic context. So I think it's already built into Johnson's strategy and it could be put to other uses in the future. I, I think I'll, I'll disagree on a couple of points. One is, and this is not nitpicking, the Johnson government is not English nationalism. There is a, there's a big distinction between Anglo-centric British nationalism, which is what he is. So he is a British nationalist. He just has a very English view of it. The reason I say that's not English nationalism is one of the things about Anglo-centric British nationalism is it denies the existence of England. Because it says, in a sense, the Union is the extension of England, it denies the existence of England. So a real English nationalism would be delivering what the political English want, which is an English parliament, English interests protected within the Union, a different distribution of resources. And the other thing about English nationalism is that it's a curious nationalism that doesn't have a political party, a political programme, a public intellectual, so all of those sorts of things. So I would say that Johnson is a British nationalist, an Anglo-centric one. That's the first point. The second thing is, is I think actually if Alex was talking about Northern Ireland, I think he'd be absolutely right. I do think that large sections of the Tory party have written off Northern Ireland and the cynicism of the withdrawal deal, which is Theresa May's withdrawal deal, except you shaft people in Northern Ireland, was extraordinary. I'm not so sure. I think in, I think the... Well, Alex may be right. I think there are still huge sections of the Tory party who would be emotionally distraught if Scotland left the Union. But I think they haven't got a clue what to do about it. And in the the debates between the Scottish Tory leader and Johnson and and the the arguments there and, and Ruth Davidson, you see that tension in the Tory party between two completely different strategies. We've seen a little bit of disagreement about what English nationalism is or whether it's Anglo-centric British nationalism. What to you is Englishness? What is English identity? Is there one English identity? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think my view is that English Englishness and English identity are not coherent enough to put a label on. They exist in inchoate ways. They're, various people make various arguments for Englishness and for English identity. Uh, various people feel genuine emotions uh, about England and about English identity. 
we, I think it's very difficult to say any more than that. The moment you start to, you know, give definition to Englishness, it's kind of slips, slips away from you. And I, it, it, it has very, very few, uh, very few institutions, very few organizational principles. England hasn't existed as separate from what John, I think, rightly calls Anglo-Britishness. Englishness hasn't really ex uh, existed as separable from that for hundreds of years. So I find it very difficult to, to answer that question. And I think uh, the difficulty in answering that question is itself quite, quite politically meaningful for me. John, what about you? Is there, to you, one version of Englishness? There, there isn't one English you have, the national identity, which is a, a collection of histories, of stories, of images, of icons, many of which are deeply cultural. Um, I'm more interested in this political Englishness, this more recent phenomenon, because previously all of that long, rich tradition of English identity did not have its own political expression. And that's what's new about the current situation. The second thing you have to say is that within England, there's quite a spread between the people who say they're more English than British and the people who say they're British, not English. And so we also have contested forms of Britishness. So there's a traditional patriotic Britishness, and there's also what I call emergent Britishness, which is what you find about young cosmopolitans, you find it amongst ethnic minorities, which is not, doesn't really adhere to Englishness at all as a national identity. Uh, that's for a whole variety of reasons, partly because British multiculturalism never engaged with English identity. So English identity is steadily becoming much more diverse, but it's been lagging behind Britishness. So there's not a single English identity, and nor can you sensibly talk about everybody who lives in England as the English, as though everyone is, is the same. Now, you're familiar with this in Wales, because you have English identifiers in Wales and British identifiers and, and, and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, deep, rich cultural traditions of Englishness, but they are quite diverse, as in all national identities. The really interesting thing is why has one set of English people become more political and have a coherence to the way they tend to vote and see the world in recent years? But talking about that political Englishness, John, those who identify as more English than British or, yeah. or, or exclusively English tend to, not exclusively, tend to vote more often for parties on, on the right of the political spectrum. One, the one question, I, well, there's a couple of questions I want to ask, but firstly, how does the left sort of deal with that? Okay. Is there a progressive Englishness? I think there's a, a couple of things. One is that the political English tend to be on the left economically, a collectivist working class view of what it was to be on the left. And secondly, their, their sense of national identity uh, really, a national sovereignty was really capitalised around the Brexit vote and then the uh, get Brexit done election that we have just we have just had. So those voters, in a sense, they're not solidly of the right by any means, but on the questions of national democracies and sovereignty and the fact that they didn't, they felt they weren't listened to is important. So people like me, people like Anthony Barnett, who wrote about this, said, look, what happened in Scotland was they were able to give the elite a kicking twice. Once they could try and give the elite a kicking in the referendum, didn't quite make it, but they got quite close. They could get, they could get rid of what they saw as a ruling elite by getting rid of Labour. The people of England have never asked how they wanted to be governed. So in many ways, all of people's frustrations about not being living listened to spilled out in the uh, European referendum and then in the desire to get Brexit done. So how does Labour get back to those people? Well firstly we actually have to be much more democratic than we are at the moment. Secondly we have to be much 
more sensitive to that working class view of the world and not so arrogantly dismissive of social conservatism as the left liberal left tends to be and we have to actually reflect their left-wing economics but we are a long way there's no no doubt about it at this moment from the sort of youthful dynamic progressive cosmopolitanism which is often associated with Welsh nationalism and Scottish nationalism at the moment building that sort of English identity is quite a long way away. Alex you think that progressive Englishness can be built? I think it's going to be very difficult progressive Englishness progressive patriotism clearly do exist I think they're meaningful and important tendencies but I think there's I think they're marginal uh, to the point that it's, they're always going to struggle. They're always going to come up against this kind of massed weight of imperial or, or quasi-imperial Anglo-Britishness, the, the, the traditions of this very strong centre which, in which England and Britain kind of overlapped in ways that means they're difficult to disentangle. It's difficult to foresee a moment uh, at which England will have a kind of modern, democratic, romantic foundation moment. I think, you know, nation states always need that. There's an argument to be had about the pros and cons of nation states generally, but I think it's it's generally true that, you know, nation states, when they're meaningful and viable and, and manage to inspire people, they have to have a kind of, uh, you know, a, a kind of modern romantic moment at which they're formed, if not with a constitution, then, uh, you know, in the case of Wales and Scotland, so, you know, some kind of modern uh, you know, democratic devolutionary institution, as as in the case of the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament. I'm, I'm not quite sure where that would come from in an English context. And I would guess and predict that, you know, any kind of progressive, modernist, democratic movement in that direction is always going to be, is always going to come up against the, the, the kind of forces of darkness where England and Englishness are concerned and, you know, it, it won't be able to self-actualise in the face of the much stronger kind of weight of, you know, kind of, you know, imperialist, conservative, uh, if not kind of far-right Englishness. I mean, I wouldn't minimise the difficulties, but I think that if the left doesn't have a conception of building a modern and inclusive English identity and English democracy, the left is actually not going to win at all. Because without a national story, it's very difficult to see how the left changes English politics and creates a different political space. The stories of England that the political English would hold do not necessarily, they're not the racist and the phobic stories that everyone assumes, but they don't necessarily include the stories of all the people who live in England who have migrant backgrounds in the recent past. So we actually need to do the same job on English identity that we did around British identity and multiculturalism. What I think will force the pace is actually the possibility of an alliance between the political English and the civic and democratic case for the change in the governance of England. If we in England compare, for example, the relative competence of Mark Drayford and Nicola Sturgeon over the centralisation of the profiteers pandemic in England and the absolute disaster of trying to run everything out of unionist centralist Whitehall, 
the row with Andy Burnham, who's you know not an English nationalist, but about powers. What you've potentially got is the ability for people to come together and say, England cannot carry on being governed in the way it is at the moment. We have huge centralization. So if England is to change, it will happen, I think, between a combination of, if you like, the more identity-based demand coming from a minority who already articulate the case for English institutions, and just lots of people in England who think we're really badly governed who think that far too few people have got their hands on far too much. And in, you know, in many ways, what's happened with the profiteering is, ab is, is not an aberration. It's symbolic of the way the, con the economy of England has been directed towards the interests of quite small groups of people. So I think that's the way it will work. I think if you, if you said, we've got to have a progressive English identity first, then we'll set about changing things. It's not, quite a, it's not like that. It's, it's a much more uh, intertwined process of campaigning for a more democratic England, a national forum for English policy to be discussed, and the shaping of an English identity at the same time. We'll, we'll get on to formal structures in a minute, John. But before we do that, I wanted to ask about, you know, a simple question of, of branding. So you run the English Labour Network. In, in Wales, we've seen success by simply calling ourselves Welsh Labour and by embodying a more independent yeah. spirit. Do you think that any such action from the Labour Party in Westminster, identifying itself as a, an English Labour brand in certain elections or in certain places, would be beneficial to it? Or do you think, like Alex said, it would open yourselves up to uh, the forces of darkness? Well, I, th I think you have to start by actually talking about England. So um, some of us on Twitter sort of keep a log of the, the repeated failure of Labour Party front bench people to mention England when they're talking about England. So if you are the shadow uh, health spokesman, person you won't mention the English NHS when that's the limit of your remit the Labour Party produced a video about water privatization blissfully unaware that water is only privatized in England they just assumed it was everywhere else so what Labour needs to do initially at least is talk far more about England the option of being able to run as an English Labour candidate is not a bad thing. I don't think that would go down everywhere, and I think there should be that choice. No, no, because constituency, if it's a, you know, there there are places where it'd be the best thing to do. There are places where you wouldn't do it. More important is that UK Labour, which is the English Labour Party, talks about Britain when it means England, in the mistaken belief that somehow that's what Scottish nationalists want to hear. They want to hear English people talking about Britain and not about England. Actually, the problem that Labour's got, that England's got, is we don't delineate the difference between England and Britain. So uh, the first stage, undoubtedly, is to persuade the Labour Party to talk about England when it means England. Do you have anything to add there, Alex? Well, I, I, I guess I would say that if, if my beliefs in my politics are really oriented around the idea of England being, England, uh, being comprised of regions... Um, as opposed, and really that be, that working in tandem with an argument about the lack of cohesion and coherence when it comes to talking about England as a whole. So in that context, it, it wouldn't make sense to me to have an English Labour branding. It would make more sense to have a branding that to an extent we already have, which is, you know, uh, Northern Labour, uh, Northeast Labour, Southwest Labour, etc, etc. So that, you know, we're getting now onto, uh, you know, the, the question of subdivisions within England mm. um, and I think that to me cuts against the idea of a, a holistic English uh, branding. 
We we had Philip Proudfoot on the show a few weeks ago talking about the Northern Independence Party. He would he would call the North a, a nation, so we'll 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 be nice to him and, and do the same. What do you think about those campaigns? What do you think about the campaigns to to have independence from within England? They're very small. Is the answer for that? And one of the one of the difficulties is look, there isn't a single region in England where the regional identity is shared more widely or felt more strongly than either English or British identity. But those regional identities or local identities are an integral part of people's identity, indeed, particularly with Englishness. So if you say you're English, you almost certainly say you're from somewhere within England as well. You, know, you talk about Yorkshire, if you say to somebody from Yorkshire, are you English, they may well say, well, I'm from Yorkshire. And then if you say, well, does that mean you're not English? They'll say, of course I'm English, I'm from Yorkshire. I mean, the two things go together in an integral sort of way. So I think, leaving aside the electoral system, it's pretty difficult for some of these small parties to get off the ground. However, there is absolutely no doubt that the future government of England has got to reflect those strongly held local identities. Uh, it can't be a technocratic boundary drawing exercise from Whitehall, which is what we've had. Alex, what, what do you think about the Northern Independence Party? I've seen you've interacted a little bit and you yeah. to comment on them a little bit in the past. So, yes. What, what do you oh, think of I, their chances? I did a podcast. I did a podcast with Philip last week. Um, I think, I mean, I'm, I, I'm against, I think the idea of a Northern Republic is a lovely idea, but it's, it's obviously a little bit ridiculous. And I, th I, you know, I think that's, that's a widely held view. The idea of a, an actual nation state uh, comprising the North of England, I don't think is, t is tenable. And certainly not in a kind of, through the, a sort of unilateral declaration of independence. Nevertheless, I do believe much more, I, I, I think the case for regionalism is much more plausible and in fact, much, much needed. So I think, you know, the Northern Independence Party, they've got a very good Twitter game. They're, you know, there's, as a provocation, I think it's a really important development. And I think the thing about um, the, this sense of there not being regional identities, I think regional identities like national identities change over time. They're quite fluid. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's quite fair to say that, you know, people identify more strongly with uh, Englishness or Britishness or regional identity, and that's kind of locked in. I think these things shift over time. For example, you know, people's identification with England and Britain and the United Kingdom uh, within England have changed. Obviously, they've changed also, also in, in Wales and Scotland. So I think one thing that is good about the Northern Independence Party is a kind of consciousness raising. You know, clearly, you're not going to have a kind of strong regional identity if you don't have institutions and kind of cultural uh, you know, people and movements making the case for them, um, you know, as with England, as, as with Englishness. So I think it's, it's a positive development that there's this kind of exercise in consciousness raising, raising essentially oriented around the idea of the North of England. I, I would agree with Alex that, that things can change. I, I think what's quite important if we're looking at where we go next is to go with the grain of where the public is at the moment. And there are two things that come out very strongly from all the polling over a long period of time. People want their laws made at an English national level. So the idea that you could have separate legislatures in, in England, that sometimes people put forward, well, we'll break England up into you know, somebody in the union government in Whitehall will break England up and they'll have their own assemblies. People don't, in England, that's a very unpopular option. The second is that outside of a small number of areas, 
people don't want regional government, but there is clearly majority support for decisions being taken closer to home. So I think that leaves us with a picture where you are more likely to build on the Greater Manchester's or a Yorkshire combined authority, which Yorkshire wanted. The, the, government, the union government wouldn't let them have a Yorkshire authority, insisted on it being West Yorkshire. But I think you, the better approach is to say, how do we build up units that people identify with locally? If somewhere down the line, you know, two or three big combined authorities in the north of England say we need to create a regional structure, then, then I'm very up for that sort of evolutionary development. And that may be much more possible in some parts of the country than in another. What we have to avoid, I think, is trying to impose a regional structure because some places want a region. Do you think that's the best way forward, Alex? Do you think this sort of metro mayor system is, is better than uh, formalised regional parliaments or assemblies? Well, I think the question's up in the air and we you know we have to acknowledge that with with a lot with almost everything we're talking about you know um these things aren't kind of um just around the corner they're not you know we're not going to be forced to act upon them tomorrow you know in the, in the case of england it's probably going to be forced upon us i think probably by some kind of breakaway uh scottish breakaway scottish independence sort of pull away towards actual independence in terms of the actual contours of of regionalism Again, you know, I think it's 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 something for it's something to work on, really. I don't think you know, I don't think there's. I, I would agree with John. I don't think there's a kind of one size fits all model for it. I think people in different parts of the country. Well, it's it's certainly people in different parts of the country feel very differently about this. There are kind of different strengths of feeling in different parts of the country. I think you know, metro mayors. It's been kind of tried and tested in various formats, but the, obviously the immediate creation of uh, you know Andy Burnham's role, and um, uh, you know all of uh, all of the other Metro mayors. Uh, you know it's really a kind of Osborneite Tory development of the early 2010s. I, you know it has various limitations. Jamie Driscoll, the North of Tyne mayor, for example, uh, has is in the absurd position where he only rules the kind of north half of the metropolitan area because the the the, the councils to the south of the Tyne and the northeast vetoed the mayoralty. So I mean it's that that is a one Metro mayor model that isn't working I'm, I'm not going to kind of suggest a kind of one-size-fits-all practical model that's going to work at this point I think it's something that we need to work on collectively and there's an important underlying issue here which I'd stress which is actually some sense of English sovereignty that actually the people of England should get the chance to decide how they wish to be governed it, because we've had no equivalent of uh, the process that took place in Scotland before devolution or even in Wales of civic society of political parties coming forward and campaigning for things. We should not be the only part of the union that's never had a constitutional discussion nor a referendum in the past 20 years. Everybody else has, Northern Ireland has, Wales has, Scotland has. And I think that discussion would actually turn out to be very, very rich. And rather than it be a couple of people like me and Alex talking about what we think might happen, I think if we had deliberative citizens assemblies things of that sort we would actually quite quickly get a much better sense of where people would like to see power lie so that idea of English sovereignty needs to be built into any vision of how we move forward yeah I completely agree with that I mean you know I, I think this we're talking at the start of, of a conversation that's gonna last for you know decades if not centuries so yeah absolutely you know at this point you know citizens Discussion forums, fantastic. 
Do you think um, what Burnham has done and that sort of figurehead role he's had has the potential to inspire other parts of other regions or other parts of England to, to ask for a more institutionalised evolution settlement, Alex? Absolutely. Well, I, 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 would, I would think so and I would hope so. Again, it, it does depend on the place and it depends on the personality. I think Andy Burnham is, has the kind of force of character that makes that work and obviously was capitalising on a specific situation and a specific really moment in 2020 where it began to be clear that there was actually a north-south divide in the spread of the pandemic and uh, you know both in uh, medical terms and in economic terms uh, it was for a long time it wasn't quite clear that that was the case but at a certain point you know towards the kind of late summer autumn we began to see you know quite clearly if you look at the map of the country and where the infections are um, and also, you know, going forward economically, you know, northern areas, particularly northern urban areas, are certainly going to suffer more than large swathes of the south. So whether, you know, whether that strategy of Burnham's and that kind of uh, sort of tub thumping, you know, seizing control of the media narrative thing can work in other contexts, I think remains to be seen. Um, I would, I would hope that it, I would hope that it would work in other contexts, but we'll, we'll see. One of the dangers is that it gets trapped into an issue of a north-south debate. And I don't deny that northern argument. But to really change England, we actually need all of England's localities saying we need to change. Because everywhere does suffer because of centralisation. Even Sadiq Khan has seen attempts by the Westminster government to remove much of his actual formal powers over transport by squeezing his budget. Now... The thing that would really mark a breakthrough would be if actually you got an alliance of Andy Streets, who's the Tory mayor of West Midlands, and Andy Burnham and Ben Hodgson from Teesside actually coming together and say, we actually all have the same problem, which is a centralised government. We have no powers as of rights. We have to beg for everything. Everything we do is a deal. That's got to change. Now, I was never that keen on mayors, if I'm perfectly honest, but actually one of the things that it has produced is the possibility of a number of identifiable, regionally relatively popular figureheads who could come together. So my, my view is, unfortunately, that if it, if it remains a North issue, because the North is a relatively small part of England as a whole, you probably don't bring about sufficient change. But if the North can actually form a political alliance with localities across England, and that means across party as well, then you might begin to get a real momentum for devolution within England. In Wales, there's often the charges levelled that institutionalised devolution is what is adding fire to the fuel of those who want the end of the union. And you hear that said a lot about Scotland too. Do you think that institutionalised devolution in the form of a UK, an English parliament would see the end of the union? Because for so many, it would be viewed as the most important parliament. Well, the, the problem at the moment with the union is that England lacks democracy and that leads to the sort of alienation that led to the Brexit vote. But also English politicians like Boris Johnson act as though they are the union. So to me, the the key to keeping, well, not keeping the union together, refounding the union is, is twofold. One is England needs the same level of democracy that Wales and Scotland have got. You know, I don't want my higher education fees set by the union parliament. I don't want my NHS legislation set by the union parliament. I want these things to be decided in England. However, 
that means the union's got to come together in a way that stops English politicians claiming to speak for the union as a whole. And that's the mature discussion. And the challenging one, England continue the union as a whole, the union is doomed. And by the way, I don't, I don't agree with the analysis that it's the creation of devolution that's leading to the breakup. The separate political identities of the nations was an inevitable part of moving from an imperial state to a post-imperial state. On the left, people tend to put the union ahead of English interests. And people who are British, not English, will say, I want the union's interests ahead of England's issues. People who tend to have voted to the right recently, and certainly the political English, tend to put the English interests ahead of the union. Doesn't mean they want independence, but so much as we want our interests protected. Typically in relation to Scotland, it's, it's a sort of, they resent the Scots. I mean, we'll go down really badly this week, Nicola Sturgeon announcing free school meals, okay? Because the English will pay for that. Right. And everybody in England knows that. And that's the way it is seen politically. So people resent that. But they don't want to break up the union, but they want English interests protected. So the left is actually more pro-union, in a, I think, in a rather abstract uh, way. But the left also has a problem that historically the Labour movement in part defined itself as the Labour Party of the working class deprived regions against southern English conservatism. Now, despite the fact that London is now a Labour stronghold, that issue has persisted, a sort of fundamental view on the left that somehow the left doesn't belong in England, it can't win in England. But if you were going to take that view, then devolution was a really stupid thing for the Labour government to do, because it, because it shattered that political coalition. And it's classic in the sense of the lack of understanding that people could shatter the coalition and then demand that it be kept in place in order to somehow have the left wing. But let's be very clear. It is quite untenable now to do what happened 20 years ago, which is to use the votes of Scottish and Welsh MPs to impose unpopular policies on England. Democratically, it will be quite impossible, probably for Labour to get elected and certainly to govern if there's no majority for English legislation within England. And that's a consequence of devolution. And if you didn't want to end up in that position, you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Okay, so that's where that's where we are today. So Labour, Labour either has to win England or it has to say we're going to need to govern with the Liberal Democrats or the Green MP or, or whatever else. But you can't go back to the days when Scottish and Welsh MPs impose unpopular English legislation on English voters when there's no English majority. And so the left has got to wake up to that. And it hasn't yet, by and large, but it, 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 it will do. How does the potential breakup of the union make you feel? Does it make you feel sad? Does it feel inevitable now? I think it would be hugely sad if uh, a group of nations with such an intertwined history, shared experiences, family connections couldn't find a way of working together. I think it would be a massive failure of political imagination to uh, allow that to happen. But the thing about breakup of the union, the language suggests we've got this thing called the union that's got to stay the same. And it's always defined in terms of does Scotland leave, or maybe now does Northern Ireland leave, or maybe even does Wales leave. There isn't really a future for the union structured as it is at the moment. 
I mean, I just don't think there is. So if we want to keep together, if we want to say we've shared so much and we have so many connections, then we need to find a new relationship between the nations of the union. So I think we're talking about refounding the union for the 21st century rather than trying to break up and stop the breakup of a union which has had its, for, its current form for 100 years. Does it feel inevitable? I, th I think, as I said, in the case of Scotland, it does feel inevitable. Whether that happens in the next 10 years or the, the next quarter century, I think it, it will happen. I mean, as, as John said, there's, there's also the, the, the case of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, I have family uh, in Northern Ireland uh, who, who live in Derry and who would very much like to be part of United Ireland. So I think that the dice is loaded uh, for me in, in the case of Ireland. I don't have any connections with Wales, but it, 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 does, it, does, it seems somewhat inevitable. The, the actual form that um, the breakup of Britain takes, uh, you know, as we said with so many other questions, is, is kind of up for grabs. I think it will be good for, for Wales, for Scotland, for Ireland. I think for England, it, there's a danger that it will you know, be, lead to sort of chaos and disaster and the kind of um, reassertion and entrenchment of the kind of conservative centralized English establishment, which, you know, really has been in place for hundreds of years, if not an entire millennium. Um, so I'm a bit worried about that. I'm a bit worried about being stuck in, 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 in an England that isn't able to kind of self-actualize on the lines that an independent, a newly independent Scotland, Wales, and a, a re reunified Ireland will be able to, to be. Do you think that, other people in England, especially on the left, value the union, or do you think they're just a little bit scared, like you seem to be, that without left-leaning Wales and left-leaning Scotland, that the left in England will be subjugated to what seems like eternal Tory rule? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's somewhat generational. I think kind of younger younger people, people let's say people under under forty, uh, I, I don't think many people feel very strongly about the union it's it seems to have completely lost its um reason for being i think it you know it'd be very it's, it's it's quite difficult to find people you know either on the radical left or the soft left or the liberal center for that matter who, who are actually uh un enthusiastic unionists and that partly that's just responding to the kind of inevitable developments in a sense that, you know, Scotland probably will break away. I, I think, that, I mean, there's a terminological issue here, isn't there? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be against some kind of union, kind of, uh, you know, lowercase u unionism, uh, if it is, you know, takes place on the grounds of a kind of, of, you know, federation, perhaps a kind of EU style arrangement, you know, thinking in real kind of abstract terms here, um, you know, some kind of connection between uh, the various constituent parts of the British Isles, which clearly have, you know, deep historical links. But the idea of, you know, a United Kingdom uh, is not one I have a lot of time for. And, you know, uh, I have a, a, a friend called Rory Scothorn. I, I, I don't know if you've met Rory, a, a Scottish, Scottish guy who writes very intelligently about the, the, the Scottish question. I mean, he says there's, there's no point in having devolution and having these various debate, debates about independence if you're not going to talk about getting rid of you know the monarchy and the kind of structures and the house of lords and you know all of these structures which are actually integral to the united kingdom and to the union as it currently exists so you know i i would follow him in that argument i think 
you know, the United Kingdom is not so, is not an idea I believe in, and I think that would be be true of you know most people kind of under forty. It's not not really an idea that they're very enthusiastic about, and they can see the way things are going. Why do you think there is that age divide? Well, I think there's there's a kind of there's an absolutely seismic age divide in in almost all political contexts, and it's kind of becoming increasingly apparent. It has to do with home ownership and quality of living declining, fees being introduced, etc., etc., in all sorts of other contexts. In terms of these questions of nationhoods, I mean, I, I think it's just the final disappearance of people who have any attachment to the old idea of Britishness, which, you know, people, you know, people of an older generation, they had, you know, parents who'd fought in the war, you know, they had, um, you know, perhaps even if they weren't monarchists, you know, some of them are monarchists, but, they, you know, their parents were monarchists. They were brought up um, in a school environment where, you know, ideas about Britishness were a lot stronger, where, you know, Britain was a much, seemed like a much more viable political entity. That's just, just doesn't exist, so, you know, simply doesn't exist anymore. And into that vacuum come various contenders, replacements, uh, obviously, you know what they are in, in Wales, you know what they are in Scotland. Uh, I think, for me, English nationalism and the kind of revival of English identity has to be seen in that context of there being a kind of vacuum where Britishness was, and then this kind of idea of England and Englishness you know, entering in there. But what I think is interesting is that the English identity, the political Englishness, is, is largely amongst older voters. And what is very interesting in England is there's not yet the equivalent of the sort of enthusiastic, youthful sense of progressive national identity that we see in Scotland, and I guess we see to some extent in Wales as well. And what has happened in England is that a younger generation has a national identity that doesn't exist as a nation. So people who are younger are much more likely to say they're British than to say they're English. But their, their idea of Britain is very different for them. their more conservative English and British neighbours, is totally different to Arlene Foster's view of Britishness, or the view of Britishness of Welsh British people or of Scottish British people. Is this a problem? Well, I actually think it is, because I think that the nation state is not going away. And I think that progressive politics depends on the solidarity and the sense of identity that comes with a national identity. So there's a real problem for the left, which is if you say we're not going to inculcate any sense of national story or of national community, I know of no successful social democracy that has ever existed without that national story. And we certainly don't live in the conditions of a sort of internationalist left that doesn't have to belong anywhere. I mean, you know, it's fair section of the Labour Party's membership does, but actually that's not where the, the bulk of the public are. So actually the idea of creating a national identity uh, which won't just be the Englishness we have at the moment, is crucial. And one of the reasons that that hasn't happened, but has happened more in Scotland and Wales, is you actually have national institutions and fora where that debate can play, take place. One of the things about British nationalism is it means that because Westminster is a British nationalist institution, it doesn't function in any way as a forum for discussion of English affairs or the centre of national debate or the discussion of all these issues that we've been talking about. So it's why the left 
I, I mean, Alex quite right. Most of the younger left doesn't engage with this issue. I would argue very strongly that's a huge strategic mistake not to engage with it. When the left does engage with it, it tends to be as, how do we reach these dreadful English people who haven't been voting for us, rather than what's the nation we want to talk about uh, living in and building a different society in. John Denham and Alex Niven, thank you very much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, where's the best place to get you, Alex? Alex underscore Niven. Nice and simple. Humble, yeah. <laughs> uh, John? At JY Denham. Wonderful. Thank you both very much. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.